We'll turn to Matthew 16. Let me hurriedly bring you up to date. We've been here, been camped here now for two weeks. We will be camped here next week. I got to looking and there's just no way to cover what is here. This is a tremendous passage, a foundational passage to understanding what the church is all about. Last week we covered, in fact, Barry, this verse that you referred to this morning, the wonderful, wonderful revelation here that saving faith is not that which men work up from within themselves, but something that comes by a divine revelation from the Father which is on high. But as I pointed to you the statement that as Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, replies, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We refer to that often as Peter's confession. Then Jesus in verse 18 says, I say also unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mentioned to you last Sunday that there are three views concerning the this rock. What did Jesus mean when he said this rock? And I remind you there is a word change going on in the Greek. The word petros, Peter, means a stone. The word petra, that is translated rock here, is a feminine word meaning a massive boulder. And so there have arisen, because of this, three basic views. The first view is that Jesus is speaking of Peter's faith as the rock on which he will build his church. I do not hold that view, and I gave you my reasons last week. Do not believe that faith itself is a thing, a rock, something on which we rest. Faith is a rest itself that rests on a rock, but faith is not a substance itself. Toss that one out. The second view, and the view that I suppose if we had to vote, certainly in Reformed and Protestant circles, this is what we'd all vote for, that Christ is the rock. That he said, thou art Peter, you're the little stone, but upon this rock, referring to himself, that he is the rock on which the church is to be built. Uh, Sometimes, however, the most popular view, I don't believe, is the correct view, and I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I most wholeheartedly agree that he is the rock of our salvation. He is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of the church. No controversy. But for several reasons, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. Rather, I believe that he is referring to Peter. I'll give you four reasons. Number one, it's the most natural rendering of the text. If you didn't know better, if, if nobody knew anything about Roman Catholics, that's the way you'd read it. You'd have no reason to read it otherwise. You say, well, what about the word change? Jesus, when he was speaking these words, was most likely not speaking Greek. He's speaking Aramaic. There is no word change in Aramaic. There is no different word for a small stone as opposed to a boulder. Most likely in Aramaic, he said, thou art kepha, the word for stone, and upon this kepha I will build my church. There is no distinction. In fact, it's not even clear that there is such a distinction in classical Greek as the small stone, as the big boulder. There are times that they're used both ways. And furthermore, Petros is a noun, a masculine noun, which has been used as Peter's name by Jesus. He told him that you will be called Cephas, the stone. You say, well, why then, if Peter is the rock that Jesus is referring to, why did he not call him Petra instead of Petros? Well, Petra is a feminine word. And rather than saying, thou art rock man, he would have been calling Peter 
bolder woman, I suppose. Something of that nature. Uh, do you see my, do you see my point? It is the most natural rendering. If we were to take a child who was not taught any differently and set this phrase before them and say, okay, now what is the rock that Peter is referring to? That's what they would understand it to be. And I think we'd say, yeah, if it wasn't for what I have been told and what I know about the teaching of Roman Catholicism, that's the way I'd interpret it. The second reason is it preserves the parallelism between verse 16 and verse 18. Peter has says, thou art the Christ. Jesus now turns around and says, well, thou art Peter. You are Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, thou art Simon Peter. And so it would be very unusual and unlikely to say the least that Jesus, in the midst of a declaration as to who Peter is, would in the midst of that say, thou art Peter. But I am the rock on which I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I'll give to thee the keys of the kingdom. Do you see the problem? Would he without any explanation in the middle of this phrase quit referring to Peter, start referring to himself, and then turn around in verse 19 and very clearly refer to Peter once again? It would seem the most natural rendering is to assume that he is addressing this whole statement to Peter. The third thing is, is that it preserves the metaphor that Jesus is employing here. There are many times that Scripture mixes metaphors. You'll be here Wednesday night. We'll talk about some of those times. Talk about our study on Revelation. But Scripture rarely mixes a metaphor in the middle of a verse. Jesus here, in the metaphor, is not referring to himself as the building material on which his church is built. He is referring to himself clearly as the builder. Agreed? I will build my church. In this metaphor, Jesus is referring to himself as the builder of the church, not the material from which the church is built. And so it would be straining at best to say that I will build my church on myself as the building block, block or rock. Straining the metaphor to say the least. And then fourthly, it's entirely scriptural to refer to the church being built upon Peter. Now, I don't mean that, that Peter somehow takes precedence over the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you'll look in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find there that the church is referred to as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. I simply make reference to the fact that though Christ is the chief cornerstone, there are three other corners, folks. There are other stones in a foundation besides the cornerstone. And it would appear that what Peter is being referred to here as one of those foundational rocks on which Christ will build his church. That's what he's declaring of Peter. That's what I will make of you. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the new Jerusalem comes down as a bride out of heaven, adorned for her husband, obviously a picture of the church. That new Jerusalem, you remember, had 12 foundations. In, na- in those 12 foundations, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so it is, there is no incongruity in saying that Peter is indeed one of the rocks, one of the foundational rocks on which Christ builds his church. That is not to say that then we hold to what the Roman Catholics hold. You see, they go far beyond this to make some other assumptions that are nothing but inventions and fabrications. 
Namely, that Peter somehow then is given a place of supremacy and superiority over the other apostles. That is absolutely nowhere to be found in Scripture. That somehow that the authority that Peter is here given is able to be conveyed to a successor, namely the bishop of Rome. That is nowhere even hinted at in Scripture. That that authority actually was conveyed by Peter upon the following bishop of Rome. No historical evidence whatsoever, no precise evidence that Peter in fact was ever in Rome. It's probable that he was, but there is no clear evidence that that was ever the case. So in other words, what I'm saying is, we I meant to read you a section out of a book probably just as well as far as time is concerned this morning. John Broadus, one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention, he along with Basil Manley and James Boyce, three great men that founded that denomination, John Broadus, uh, he and Basil Manley are the two men that give the publishing organ of the Southern Baptist Convention its name, Broadman. That's where it comes from. It's from those two men. Both of three, All three of those men were Calvinists. But he makes a reference in his commentary on the book of Matthew. By the way, I promise I didn't read this before last Sunday. I read it this past week. In which he wholeheartedly agreed with me. <clears throat> but he makes this statement that we, when we argue with the Roman Catholics and argue over whether Peter or Christ is the rock that's referred to here, we're arguing on the wrong ground. It says we weaken our case because we make it sound like that our whole argument either falls or stands on whether this was Jesus or Peter. And that's not the case at all. Even if this is Peter, that in no way means what the Roman Catholics presume to teach is then true. That's my point. As much as the Roman Catholics tend to overemphasize apostolic authority, you and I in Protestant circles tend to underemphasize apostolic authority. We put too little meaning in the fact that Jesus handpicked these twelve men and gave to them a special office that is of immense foundational importance to the church itself. Well, let's hurry on because I want to especially have your attention be fixed this morning in verse 18 on the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church. We have seen that the church is viewed in many ways, sometimes as a field. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The metaphor of a field is employed. Sometimes it's used, as in the case here, of a building. And that we say, what kind of building? Scripture always identifies that building as a temple. In other words, Jesus is saying that I'm going to build my church on this rock. And this building that he is building is in fact a temple, a place of worship, a place where spiritual sacrifice is offered up to God. I want you to understand and realize that the Messiah, as a temple builder, was a common theme in the ministries of the Old Testament prophets. They prophesied that Messiah, when he would come, would be a temple builder. Let me have you turn back to the book of Zechariah just for a moment. Zechariah is one of the three post-exilic prophets. We mean by that 
He was one of the three prophets that prophesied to that Jewish remnant that came back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians and after they had been in captivity there for some 70 years. You may recall the fact that that remnant of Jews that returned came back led basically by two men. One of those men was a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was not a king. After all, this was hardly a kingdom. They were simply there by the good pleasure of Persian kings. But he was more or less their governor. He functioned as their civil authority. And if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you'll find that Jesus' genealogy comes through this man Zerubbabel. He is the man who would have been king had there been a king, you understand. But then there was a second man, a man by the name of Joshua. This is not the Joshua that led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan in the first place. This is a Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, not Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua is the high priest of this people coming back. So we have the two lineages, the lineages of the kings of Israel culminating in Zerubbabel, one of the leaders, and the lineage of the priestly line, the family of Aaron, culminating in Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You may, if you want to work your way through a exceedingly difficult passage, you can look in Zechariah chapter 4, where to Israel, is, Zechariah is given this vision of two olive trees standing there with pipes coming out of the olive trees, feeding a lamp with seven candles or lamps burning. And, and he asks Zerubbabel, or he asks Zechariah, do you know what this means? And I'm sure I wouldn't know what it meant either. And he says, no, I don't know. He says what it means in verse 6. He says, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. This is a message for Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. In other words, Zerubbabel, you've got a task ahead of you. It is to rebuild this temple. It's to rebuild this city. A massive undertaking for a bunch of refugees from captivity. But you will accomplish it not by your might, not by your power, but you will accomplish it by my spirit. And he goes on to prophesy that in verse 9 here, that as the hands of Zerubbabel had in fact laid the foundation of the temple, and you recall they had done that, gone that far, but then they got very discouraged and let the thing lay for about 20 years before they ever started working on it again. Only through the ministry of Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi were the people stirred up to finish what they started. But he prophesies here that just as Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation so he will finish it. In fact, in verse 7, he says he'll put the headstone, the capstone on the building, crying grace, grace unto it. Oh, wonderful, wonderful prophecy here. So you understand that the business of building a temple was the message of the prophets that prophesied to this people. It was an important thing that was going on in their historical day. But now look at chapter 6 of Zechariah. Look down at verse 9. Zechariah 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and of Jediah, who are come from Babylon, and come the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this is a very important thing that you grasp what's going on here. He's saying, Zechariah, I want you to go into this fellow's house and take you some of these witnesses that returned from Babylon, 
And I want you to take Joshua, who is the high priest. And then I want you to take gold and silver and fashion crowns. And I want you to put them on his head. Now that's an astounding thing that's going on there. I don't know if you realize how shocking a thing that is. But you see that saying that we're going to make a king out of this priest. And that's the one thing that had never happened in Israel. We have the three great offices of the Old Testament. The office of king, the office of prophet, and the office of priest. And and there are cases of men that would hold two of those offices at the same time. At the Hairston's the other night, we talked about how the fact that David was both a king and a prophet, according to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Being a prophet, he foresaw these things, Peter said. We find a man like Samuel, who was a prophet, but he was also a priest. But never do we find a king and a priest brought together in one man. In fact, that's what got Saul in a whole lot of trouble when he as king of Israel intruded into the priestly office offering a sacrifice when that was Samuel's business. And that was one of the things that led to his downfall. So what Zechariah is saying here, take Joshua, the high priest, and put crowns on his head as if he's a king. Bring together these two lines, these two lines that are now separated in the persons of Zerubbabel, the civil authority, and Joshua, the religious authority. Bring those together, illustrate it by putting crowns on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now read on. Verse 12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. The branch. Now if you want a good exercise this afternoon, get your concordance out and look at the Old Testament references to the branch. And you'll begin to understand that this is in fact a reference to the coming Messiah. That's how they would understand the term the branch. He's a root out of Jesse. Branch, you see. So Zechariah is saying, let's take Joshua set him down, the high priest, put crowns on his head, and now says, Behold, the man whose name is a branch. You're looking for the branch? This is what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to be. He's going to be both, you see, both a king and a priest. Those offices that have been separated in the Old Testament time are going to come together in this man whose name is the branch. Read on. He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He'll be a temple builder. The man whose name is the branch will be both the civil and the religious authority and he'll build the temple. Just what Zerubbabel is doing, that's what the branch will do when he comes. Verse 13, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, shall sit and rule upon his throne. He'll be a king and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Obscure saying, but we would assume that what he's saying is is that Christ in the person of the branch, these two offices would be brought and reconciled together, the office of king and priest. But notice that what's being said here is that this coming Messiah would in fact be a kingly priest, that's number one, and secondly, he'd be a temple builder. Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, his temple. 
His body. And do you not realize that the very first thing John records Jesus addressing the statements of Jesus to the Jews in Jerusalem was that He said these words, destroy this body, this temple, I'm sorry, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And John adds the commentary that He spoke not of that earthly temple, but of the temple of His body. So we would understand by all of this, bringing it all together, that yes, the Messiah, when He comes, will be indeed a temple builder, but it won't be a temple made out of wood and stone and clay and gold and silver and so forth, but it will be a spiritual building composed of the lives of men and women and children that Jesus will employ as stones, living stones, Peter calls them, built on the foundation of Christ and His apostles. Christ, as the builder of His church, He's the architect of that builder. He's the one who decides how it will be constructed, what size it will be, how it will be designed. But He's not only the architect, He's what we would call, I guess, the master craftsman. He's the one who actually places the stones in the building. So when men and women, boys and girls, are added to this superstructure that he calls here his church, that we would understand that it's not the free will of man that has added them, but it's the Lord has added these stones to his building. And that is precisely the wording of the book of Acts. If you'll look in chapter 2 of Acts, the great events of that day of Pentecost, when we find those 5,000 men are added to the church, In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 5,000 a little later, I'm sorry. 3,000 souls that day were added to the company of the saints. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord... Added daily. Added to the church daily such as should be saved. Thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. That is precisely the way the book of Acts then unfolds the growing and the building of the church, the body of Jesus Christ, that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now in our text, the very next thing that is pointed out And it needs to be taken in conjunction with what is said. Christ is the builder of His church. The next thing that is stressed is the permanency of that structure. He goes on to say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We must be clear that if God is not in our activity, if God is not in our building, then the building will not stand. Except the Lord build the house, the psalmist said. They labor in vain that build it. 
But, on the other hand, if this building, this activity of building is something God does, then we remember a verse over in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where Solomon says, I know that what God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away. In other words, if this building is just man's activity, fleshly work and fleshly labor that brings together God's church, then we would have no confidence that it might stand But if this is indeed God building the church, if it's the Lord adding daily to the church such as should be saved, then we have every confidence in the world that this is a structure that shall never fall because God has built it. And that now is what is emphasized. That the gates of hell itself shall not prevail against Christ's church. Now what does he mean by that? The word hell here is a Greek word, Hades. In Greek thought... Hades was the name of the abode where the dead souls of men went to live after their physical life. In other words, when the Greek warriors died, their souls would then go to Hades. It was generally viewed as being in the underworld. Uh, Pluto, you may remember, was their god of the underworld, the god of Hades. And in Greek thought, Hades was divided into two sections. One was Elysium which was a place, a paradise, where men enjoyed the uh, rest from their labors. And then another place that was called Tartarus, which was a place of punishment, where criminals were inflicted with all sorts of pain, all sorts of misery. But you would understand then that all men went to hell, all men went to Hades according to Greek thought. It's simply where dead folks go, where the souls of men go after they live. Now, Hebrew thought was very, very similar and as it's developed in the Old Testament. We have a Hebrew word called Sheol. Sheol, which is translated sometimes hell, sometimes the grave, sometimes the pit. But again, it means precisely the same thing as as the Greek term Hades. It simply means the place where men go when they die. So when you would say that in the Old Testament term that men, when they die, go to hell... That would not have any moral meaning whatsoever. It does not mean that they were good or bad or being punished or rewarded. It simply means that they went to the grave. They went to this place that is the abode of the, of the dead after their life on this earth. Hades, Sheol, was generally thought of as being in the earth. And they would speak of men going down into the pit or down into the grave. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 4 just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended, that is to go up, he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that's a quote out of Psalm 68, which speaks of the victorious triumph and return of a conquering king. It's as if an enemy has taken your people captive and this king has gone out and in his triumph over that enemy has brought again back those people who had been captive as his spoils. He has brought captivity captive. You understand? And so this is applied to Christ, oftentimes interpreted that Christ indeed brought with him back to glory those souls of men like Abraham and the Old Testament saints that had been in Hades. That's reading an awful lot into this verse, but that's how it's commonly interpreted. But regardless, look at verse 9. Now he that 
ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Again, just as the Greeks, the Hebrew thought was, is that when you die, you go down. And that's the idea that Christ first went down, and from the lower parts of the earth, he ascended to glory, leading captivity captive. But the difference between Jewish and Greek thought consisted of this. In Hebrew thought, Hades, Sheol, was a temporary resident. It was simply a place where people were until the day of resurrection. It was at the resurrection that they would enter into their final blessing or into the final place of punishment. In Jewish thought, Sheol, hell, was a shadowy place. You say, well, that's awful vague. Well, vagueness was the chief characteristic of hell. Sheol, Hades in Hebrew thought. They really didn't know much about it, didn't say much about it, but they said there was such a place and we really don't know. It's just a shadowy world of existence. But in any event, we've got to keep straight in our mind the difference between Hades, hell, and Gehenna, hell. Jesus, in referring to that place where the worm dies not, where the fire is not quenched, did not employ the term Hades. He employs the term Gehenna. And the lake of fire in the book of Revelation is not speaking of Hades. For there we read that death and hell, Hades, deliver up their dead and from those whose names were not written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. This, my friend, is the Gehenna, the hell that the Scriptures warn us about. Modern popular thought confuses the two all the time. You ask to look at the cartoons, how hell is represented. We see Satan dressed up like a, well, I got the horns and the pitchfork and the forked tail running around tormenting people in the flame. There is a sense in which Satan is viewed in Scripture as having authority over Hades, but never of having any authority in Gehenna. In Gehenna, he is the one who is tormented, not the one who torments. Well, of all of that, to get to this, what in the world then do we mean by the term the gates of hell? When Jesus says that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against this church that I'm building, what does he mean? Well, again, we find many views. Those who embrace the dominion theology, that is, that Christianity is to triumph over the earth and more or less to impose the rule of God on the earth, point out the fact that the gates of a city is not an offensive weapon, but a defensive weapon. In other words, gates is what you close to keep the enemy out. It wasn't that which you attack the enemy with. And so the interpretation according to that view is that Jesus is simply saying that the powers of hell out there will not be able to stand against the onslaught, the advancement of his church. You might remember Samson, one of his exploits, he went to Gaza and carried off the gates of Gaza. Now just to pick up the gates of Gaza was probably an ordeal, but he did not just pick them up, he carried them off, and he carried them about 30 miles before he put them down. And of course the idea was Samson had rendered the defense of absolutely defenseless, carried off their gates. That's about as defenseless as you could make a city in those days. There may be some truth to that interpretation, but I want you to again look at the metaphor 
the words that the gates of hell shall not prevail against, those two words, which means literally to be strong against, does not seem to imply that it's the church here on the offensive, but that the church will stand on this rock, its foundation, and that nothing shall be able to prevail against it. The church here is viewed as something stationary, built upon its foundation, on the rock. And these powers referred to as the gates of hell, at least according to that statement, prevailing against, tend to imply the fact that they are the ones attacking the church. Jonathan Edwards, it was a great post-millennialist, but Jonathan Edwards in his great work, History of Redemption, constantly refers to this passage, to this verse, and interprets it constantly as the assaults on the church by the powers of Satan. I think there is a better way of viewing it, a more scriptural way of viewing what the gates of hell mean, is that the gates not only were the defense of a city, but they were the entrance into that city. If you were to look up in the Old Testament the times that this expression, the gates of Sheol, or the gates of death, a very common, well, not real common, three times used in the Old Testament. But if you'll look at when those phrases are employed, you'll find that most of the time, if not all the time, they're being used to illustrate a man's entrance into the kingdom of Hades, Sheol, Hell. They're used to illustrate a man entering into this place of death. Let me give you one quick reference. Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. Hezekiah is sick. About ready to die, he thinks. God grants him a span of 15 years. Now in verse 9, Isaiah chapter 38, verse 9, we read the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. I said in the cutting off of my days... I shall go to the gates of the grave. Although it's the Hebrew term, sheol, hell. In other words, when I was lying there on my sick bed, nigh unto death, I said, I will go to the gates of hell. Now that would very clearly, in this case, be referring to Hezekiah entering into this domain, this kingdom, referred to here as shield. The gates, in this case, is clearly referring to one's entrance, the entrance place. Look in Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. Another reference. Psalm 9, verse 13. David cries, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer from those who hate me. Thou who liftest me up from the gates of death, in this case. Not the exact same term, but it would seem to indicate the same basic meaning. That you have preserved me from the gates of death. Again, you'd say, what does that mean? It would mean his entering in to this kingdom of death, whatever that might be. One other phrase, one other passage. Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verse 18.
Verse 17, let's start there. Psalm 107, 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw nigh unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. He saves them out of their distresses. Again, the gates of death here would speak of the entrance into this kingdom that is called Sheol, hell. Well, one final thing that we ought to add to that that I think throws more light on it is the oriental expression of the gates of a city, the oriental usage. Because you may remember that time and time again in the Old Testament, the gates of a city was referred to as the place of counsel, the place of deliberation. It would be like in our vernacular saying they're going to sell the farm down on the courthouse steps. You say, well, what do you mean? Now, can you imagine somebody digging up a thousand years from now a piece of paper that said this was sold down on the courthouse steps? And you say, what, what do you mean? Well, we know what that means. We mean that's the place that public transactions take place. It's down on the courthouse steps. That is precisely the way the gates of a city was employed. When it says that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, it didn't mean he was sitting out there watching people come in and go out. It meant that he was in a place of importance. That's where the elders of the city would gather to take counsel, to make their deliberations, to make decisions. Boaz, when he was to redeem the property that had been Ruth's husband and to buy her for his wife, he went to the gate of the city and called the elders together. And that's where that transaction took place. That was constantly the way the term the gates of a city was referred to. The place of counsel. The place of deliberation. And so if you'll get, grant me this liberty to bring all of this together then, I think the best interpretation is is that what Jesus is saying is expressly as Jonathan Edwards and others would have us interpret it. That he's saying that I'm going to build on Peter and others and myself as the chief cornerstone, my church, and the gates of hell. Yes, that would mean the entrance into death itself. Death will not prevail against my people. That's a rather bold claim for a nomadic teacher at this point in time. Doesn't even have a place to lay his head and got 12 scraggly followers behind him, one of which is going to betray him. But that the gates of hell itself, death itself, will not prevail against my church. That's a tall claim when you think about it. And not only the gates of hell as the incidents of death that would not prevail against his church, but the machinations of Satan, the contrivances of Satan's. Satan, as it were, as he is viewed in the book of Hebrews, as having power over death, the Hebrews 2 tells us, that as it were the deliberations of Satan, the plans of Satan against the church of Jesus Christ will not prevail against it. Think of the attacks in history that Satan has made upon the church of Jesus Christ. The very crucifixion of Christ itself was a satanic plot. Satan having entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And Paul makes reference to that fact in the book of 2 Corinthians that had the princes of this world known the wisdom of God, had they known what the cross was all about, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The crucifixion of Christ, putting Christ to death, was a satanic plot. But rather than that being the downfall of Christ's church, that just put the cornerstone in place. For well, the prophets had said, the stone which the builders are going to reject, I'm going to make 
the head of the corner. And so Satan, in attempting to overthrow Christ's kingdom, in fact, lays the first course of the foundation. Think about the attacks on the church by the Jews. Had they had their way, they no doubt would have wiped out the name of Christ, wiped out all traces of Christianity in their day. And yet, in their attacks on the church, it was like stamping on an ant bed. And rather than killing them, they simply scattered them to the four winds. And everywhere they went, they went preaching this gospel and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And the more the Jews persecuted it, the more it spread. And in fact, the Jewish persecution not only did not stamp out Christianity, but out of the ranks of the Jewish persecutors itself, one Saul of Tarsus is brought into the church as an apostle of Jesus Christ and the one most chiefly responsible for its spread throughout all the known world. We think of the persecution of the church in the days of the Roman emperors when Rome under Nero finally turned hostile to the, rule of, to the name of Christ and to the religion we call Christianity. And Rome made attempt after attempt after attempt to blot the name of Christ out from under the sun. And yet, as we know, the old figure of speech has often been employed to refer to those days that the blood of the church is the seed. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. We find references to scores of men and women being converted to the cause of Christ by standing and hearing the testimonies of men that they were about to burn at the stakes. It got so bad that they finally started putting sticks and gagging these men not letting them speak, because at their death they would kill one and thirty more appear, men converted through the influence of that martyr. And we think of the attacks on Christianity in our day. Had we lived in the Soviet Union, I suppose we'd think this is probably the Great Tribulation. You know, the Great Tribulation is the one that, for you, is the one when the soldier takes his sword and holds it up over your head. That's the one you've got to worry about. And yet we have still hearing reports from the East, from places like China and the Soviet Union, of great revival breaking out over there. Because as the Marxists attempt to wipe out all traces of the name of Christ and the name of God from their culture, instead it just created a great vacuum in the hearts of these people. A hunger to know the God that created them. We think of the persecution of the church in the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church. More martyrs have been slain in the name of religion than any other name, any other cause. And yet I think in the year 1514, a papal envoy showed up at the Vatican reporting to the Pope that finally all heresy had put, been put down. In other words, all their rule, all the kingdoms under their rule had been subjugated to the rule and the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. They had wiped out all dissenting voices and then three years later, an old Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a piece of paper up on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany and shook the world to its foundation. Who knows what shall come to us in our land. We may yet see the day in which we are persecuted. But oh my friend, Christ said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Got to make three quick points. Where's the church built? Where's it established? I think part of our problem is we tend to think that we're trying to build something down here on earth. 
that cornerstone that the builders rejected, the prophet said, I will lay it in Zion. It's not here on earth. The cornerstone of the church is laid down in heaven. The stones, the apostolic stones of the unfoundation, their testimony is written in heaven. That's where the church is truly being established, my friend. It is not an earthly institution. It is a heavenly institution that has an earthly aspect. But our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. We are heavenly people. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And when the church finally appears in its fullness, in its beauty, it is not something that arises up from the earth. It is something John sees coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And may I point out the necessity of Christ in laying the stones of His church. The permanency of it rests upon the fact that God did it. That Christ builds it. My friend, if your free will can put you in that building, your free will can get you out. If a man can put you in the church, a man can break you out. My friend, if anyone but Christ has added you to the church, don't think for a moment that you can stand against the assaults of Satan, against the gates of hell. Satan will employ every device in the world to move you from that foundation if you can be moved. And the only way you cannot be moved is if Christ Himself has placed you as a living stone into this building. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul ends that wonderful discourse by saying, what is it that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Why, there's not one thing, not death, nor life, nor principalities or powers. There's not things present nor things to come. There's nothing that will sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then finally, I'll end with your responsibility, Peter says, coming unto that stone, coming unto that living stone. First Peter 2. You say, what hope is there for me then to be built into that building? My friend, about all you can do is just come off of yourself as building material. That's about it. You can't place yourself in the church. But you can come to the builder and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Save my soul. You can cast yourself on that rock. Oh, you say, but I just might break. You know, not might, you will. Jesus said, everyone that falls on me shall be broken. But he on whom this rock falls shall be crushed, ground to powder. You're going to be broken one way or the other. It's just a question of when. Cast yourself on Christ. Yes, you shall be broken like a horse. You no longer be your old self-willed master anymore. Another will control your life. But his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Come to the Master. Come to He who is the corner, the head of the corner, and cast yourself on His mercy. Indeed, as we sang earlier, all other ground is sinking sand. You say, well, it doesn't look like it's sinking sand. I think I'm doing fine. 
Yeah, folks over there in that Marina District, San Francisco, didn't think that was sinking sand either till the earth shook, and then they found out that what looked to be solid wasn't solid at all. They tell us that what's going to happen here. Well, don't know about all that. But I do tell you this, if you're standing in that day on any other foundation, if your soul is resting on any other hope, then the person and work of Jesus Christ If you can be shaken, you shall be removed. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Once more God will shake this earth that the things which can be shaken shall be removed. But receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we serve our God with godly fear. On what are you built? Let's pray. Father, Cause us to examine our hearts and souls this day to see what is it exactly that we rest upon. What's the foundation of our life? Is it sinking sand? Are we deceived? Are we trusting in flesh, in fleshly emotion, fleshly decision? Or Lord, have you done a work in our heart? Is there something in us that God did? Have you granted us the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Have you opened our eyes to His glory? Have you caused us to draw nigh to Him and cast our souls upon Him, trusting Him and nothing else? Lord, which is it? May we not be deceived. And Father, may we glory in this Savior who builds His church on a sure and a firm foundation The gates of hell itself shall not prevail against it. Father, thank you. Do the work that only you can do. How we long to see that day when the capstone shall be added, as in the days of Zerubbabel. And we shall all stand and cry, Grace, grace unto it. For we ask it in the name of Jesus.